please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, I will read verses 10 through 20. Our focus will be on verses 10 through 17. This is the word of God. Please give your careful attention to its reading. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray once more and ask God's blessing on it. Our Father, we ask that you would enable us to see the riches of Christ in this passage and all that you have furnished us with in him. Please give us understanding by your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Heavenly warfare calls for heavenly armor. As we've been going through Ephesians, we have been looking at the supremacy of Christ over all things and how this has um, been accomplished in his work on earth, his ministry on earth, his death on the cross, his ascension into heaven. But now we're also considering that this has implications for the church as well, that the church has been brought into union with Christ and that Christ, through the church, is doing something on the earth, that he is continuing a conflict that he himself has engaged in and has already triumphed in. Last week in the evening, we we looked at the the nature of this conflict and that it is engaged with heavenly powers, real entities in heavenly places which exert a, a deceiving a destructive influence on the hearts of men, leading them into deception and from deception into wickedness. And the church is called to withstand, to take up armor and to be strengthened in the strength of the Lord and to withstand against these heavenly powers. 
So we'll be considering this morning this armor that we are called to take up. We are called to be strengthened in the Lord, and, and part of that is to put on the armor that God himself has provided us with. So as we do this, we'll, we'll consider it under two main points. Um, first, the, the renown of this armor, the, the storied history of this armor that we are called to put on. And then secondly, putting on this armor itself. So as we uh, look at this idea of being made strong in the Lord, being made strong in Christ by putting on this armor, first let us consider where this armor comes from. As we look through the list, we we see that Paul describes a, a number of pieces of equipment that the church is called to put on, that you are called to put on. He speaks of girding your loins with truth, as a breastplate of righteousness, of feet shod with uh, readiness, the readiness of the gospel of peace, or the shield of faith, or the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. But we need to understand that this is not the first time that these pieces of equipment, these pieces of, pieces of armor have appeared in Scripture. In fact, there's a long and, and storied history, a, a, a renowned history of these pieces of armor. And so coming to Ephesians chapter 6 without knowing about that uh, armor would, would be something like being handed a, a sword with a, a green spiral hilt and told to take the sword and go into battle. And you might say, well, this is, this is a very, uh, very nice sword, very ornate, very well crafted, uh, but it's, it's just a sword, isn't it? <coughs> but consider if somebody were to hand you a sword and then say, I have this on loan from the Smithsonian. This is the sword that was used by General George Washington uh, during the Revolutionary War. And now this is the sword that you are to take as you engage in some form of, of earthly warfare. That would change your perspective on the sword. You wouldn't just look at it as some sword with a, with a green hilt. You would recognize that this sword has a long and storied history and that you are part of that now as you take up that sword and you continue the fight. That's an earthly illustration. I don't mean to conflate uh, the sword of George Washington with the sword of, of the spirit in our, our text this morning. But consider that in our text there is a history to these weapons. So let's uh, briefly look through Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11 describes this in describing uh, the Messiah who will come. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness, or truth, the belt of his loins. So as Israel is suffering uh, opposition from Assyria, there is the promise that a Messiah will come, 
and this Messiah who brings righteousness will uh, destroy uh, the wicked. And as he comes, he is, he's described as, as wearing a belt of truth or a belt of faithfulness. And so we recognize that this belt that we are called to put on has been worn by the Messiah. And that when a warrior wearing this belt appears, it is to uh, bring righteousness. <coughs> Further in Ephesians, we read of having your feet shod with the readiness of the gospel of peace. And again in Isaiah chapter 52, we read, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. And then again in Isaiah chapter 59, we read of a bleak situation in which there is no justice. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. Yet truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will make recompense. And so as we are reading in Ephesians chapter 6, and we, we are reading about this armor, we're recognizing that these, these equipments of armor have already been, been seen before in Scripture, and that the person who was wearing them was the Messiah, was the Lord himself. And that he appeared wearing these garments to bring about a righteousness, to bring an advancement of his kingdom. now it's us Christians, the church who have been called to put on these same pieces of armor now understanding this renowned history uh, uh, we can draw two points of, of application from understanding this renowned history, first this shows us the grace of God towards us <clears throat> If you were to read the former description of the Ephesians in one hand, if you were to have Isaiah in the other hand, and you were to read these side by side, you could ask yourselves, on which end of the pointed sword did the Ephesians formerly find themselves? <clears throat> Listen to how Paul describes the Ephesians. Formerly as dead in your trespasses and sins, living in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. He describes them as Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by those called circumcision, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He writes to them, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. 
For they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality, to the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So he says, you must no longer walk that way. The implication being that formerly this was the manner in which you walked. The Ephesians have to lay aside the life of the former man which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Paul writes that once you were darkness. We have to encourage the Ephesians to speak the truth. Why? Because their former manner of life was characterized by falsehood and deceit. We must tell them that they must steal no longer. Why? Because their former manner of life was characterized by thieving and stealing. He tells them that there must not be a hint of sexual immorality among them, no immorality or uncleanness. Why? Because their former way of life was characterized by those things. So if this is the description of the, the Ephesians formerly and the description of all of us formerly apart from Christ, and you read that in one hand, and you go back to Isaiah, and you read this description of the Lord who sees that justice has been driven out of town, uh, righteousness has, has, has fallen down, and now the Lord appears with righteousness as a breastplate, with salvation as a helmet, and with a cloak of vengeance, that the Messiah will destroy his enemies with his breath, with the rod of his mouth. Which side of that were we on? In Isaiah, we were on the, the pointed end of that sword. But in Ephesians, what side of that sword are you on? You're on the hilt end. This is the grace of God in that he takes these unrighteous sinners who do not know the way of peace, who do not know righteousness. And in a way of speaking, he does kill them in that he unites them to his son, Jesus Christ, in a death like his, and then he raises them again to new life. And so having raised you again to new life, he also includes you in, in, an, in a creaturely way, in a, in a churchly way, of continuing his work in the world to bring righteousness where there is formerly injustice and uh, a total lack of what characterizes the kingdom of God. So first, understanding the, the storied history of this armor uh, reveals to us God's grace as we look at this transformation from uh, these unrighteous Ephesians, ourselves being unrighteous, and yet now being made and called to put on the same very armor which the Messiah and which the Lord uh, are described as wearing in Ephesians. Second application, understanding the renowned history of this armor, or the, the storied history of this armor, uh, helps inform our calling as the church, helps us understand who we are as the church and what we are, are called to do. In Isaiah, those who, who take up this armor, uh, the Messiah, comes to, <coughs> to judge with, with righteousness, to take those places in Israel where there is injustice and to bring justice, to interrupt the unchecked wickedness that characterizes those to whom he comes. And this is 
part of what God would have the church to do. That the victory ultimately belongs to Jesus Christ. There is a unique way in which those passages in Isaiah are fulfilled in Christ that, that do not apply. Christ is the unique redeemer. I don't want to make any confusion between the redeemer and the redeemed, the creator and the creature. <coughs> but recognize that Christ has united you to himself and that in uniting you to himself, it's through the church that he is carrying out uh, his victory. In a previous sermon, I, I used this illustration. It's, it's like when David fought Goliath. And the David versus Goliath showdown was, was <coughs> representative. The two went out representing their, their armies. But then after David killed Goliath, the Israelite army follows and pursues the same. Well, we follow a greater David, Jesus Christ, the son of David. And he has triumphed over all of his enemies. He has triumphed over all of the, the hosts of Satan. He has been enthroned in the highest heavens. But now he, he, in uniting the church to himself, he calls the church to go root the enemy. To go carry on that victory which he has already obtained. And so we see ourselves in the church as part of this great conflict. It's easy to view church as <coughs> just something you do uh, on a Sunday once a week. Uh, you come to worship. Perhaps you have a midweek gathering that you attend. But it's, it's easy to lose sight of this, this larger picture, this, this cosmic scope of what is going on through the work of the church, that there is a battle that has been waged since Genesis 3 between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and that battle continues even presently. Throughout all of the Old Testament, there is so much military language, there is so much con conquest, and this is, this is that war being played out between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And the reason we don't have geopolitical conquest by the church anymore is because the nature of our warfare has changed since Jesus Christ entered heaven. That under the Old Testament, to conflict with these demonic powers was to conflict with the nations that were under their thumbs. But now, since Jesus has died and has risen again and has ascended into heaven, <coughs> there's, there's been a, a, a decoupling that the, the nations are being plundered out from underneath those wicked heavenly powers that have led them astray as all things are being summed up in Jesus Christ. And so this is, this is part of the work of the church that we have, that we are called to, uh, to further the advancement of the gospel. And the way we do this is through the heavenly armor with which we are equipped. And so let's now look to that, our, our second main point, uh, putting on the armor which God supplies. We'll uh, consider each of these uh, individually, um, give, give some attention to each one. <coughs> but on the whole, what, what can we say unites all of these pieces of armor together? How is it that we put on this armor? 
to put on this armor is to put on Christ himself. To be clothed in this armor is to be clothed with Christ. To wear the helmet of salvation is to wear Christ's salvation. To wear the breastplate of righteousness is to wear Christ's righteousness. To take up the shield of faith is to take up the faith as we trust in Jesus Christ in the work that he has done. So as, as we go through this, we will, uh, we will consider how it is that we can take up each of these pieces of armor individually, but, but recognizing just as a whole, how do you put on this armor? You go to Christ. You look to him into the salvation that he has accomplished for you. And from that, you derive your strength. So first, consider the belt of truth, girding your loins with truth. We can consider that this is the truth that is in Jesus Christ. That if we want to be unencumbered as we engage in our conflict, we need to have complete commitment to the truth that is rooted found in Jesus Christ. There are many false teachings that abound there are many who would lead astray through their teaching, but it's the truth in Jesus Christ, returning over and over again to the teachings of Scripture and the truth that is found in him that gives us that, that ability to be unencumbered, that prevents us from getting tripped up as we engage in this warfare. So going back again and again, and again to what the Scriptures have told us about Jesus Christ and comparing all that we hear with what the scriptures tell us about his about God's son. But then having come to the truth in Jesus Christ, it's we also must put the truth into practice. Uh, earlier in, in the book, Paul has described the truth as being in Jesus Christ, but then he says that we must now speak the truth to one another because we are members of one another. So as there is this truth which God has provided in his son, we must also recognize that as a community, as a church, as Christians, we must put away all falsehoods and speak the truth with one another. There is the breastplate of righteousness. Again, we can consider how God has provided the perfect righteousness in his son, Jesus Christ, that any righteousness which is sought to be established outside of Christ is no righteousness at all. That if you seek to establish a righteousness through your own works, through um, simply trying to be a, a good person or to observe the law or any kind of law, whether it's <coughs> God's law or whether it's some man-made law, that this does not lead to righteousness. If you try to make a breastplate out of some other righteousness, that is going to be penetrated by the first arrow that strikes. But the righteousness which Christ provides is altogether impenetrable. That whatever accusation might be brought against the righteousness of Christ uh, cannot dent it, cannot harm it. Whatever sin is plaguing the conscience, whatever sin that you're wondering, can it really be forgiven? Here is a breastplate that cannot be pierced, 
because the righteousness of the fresh coat is the righteousness of Christ himself. But again, having been united to Christ and having received that righteousness, we ourselves are then called to live righteously with one another. Again, called to put away every manner of ungodliness. Verse 15, we are to put on our feet or to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And again, consider first how this is something that Christ has done. Remember in, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that Christ came and he preached peace to those who are near and to those who are far off. He comes and preaches peace to Jew and to Gentile. He comes and preaches peace indiscriminately to whether they are uh, within the law, under the law already, or whether they are without the law, whether they are within the covenant community or whether they are without the covenant community, he comes preaching peace. An end of hostility between man and God and an end of hostility uh, among men as they boast in the flesh and glory in the flesh. All of that is put away as we are brought into fellowship and union with Christ. But then we, as the church, also are those who share that good news of peace, to have a readiness about us with our feet to share what God has done in bringing an end to this hostility. Furthermore, there is the shield of faith. Again, we can consider how this is the shield of God's faithfulness, as he has sent his own son to display his righteousness. The faithfulness that Jesus Christ demonstrated in his life, and which is uh, the, the, the event of his life and all that he accomplished in his life, as summed up in the rule of faith and the, the Apostles' Creed, which we confessed this morning. The faith, understanding it that way, is a shield. And then secondly, we can consider it as our own trusting faith through which we have the ability to look to God in Christ and to find a defense against the fiery arrows of the evil one. And so consider that you need to take up the shield of the faith, that, that um, the things that we believe and hold as sacred in the church, what we have confessed this morning about Jesus Christ, who he is as the Son of God come in the flesh, what he has done, living righteously, dying for our sins, rising again, ascending into heaven, coming again to judge the world in righteousness. Holding fast to that faith is a shield against the attacks of the devil. But if you abandon that faith, the Catholic faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, there is a flaming arrow that will wreak so much destruction and havoc in the church. Consider what becomes of a church that departs from that faith. I won't name specific denominations, but <coughs> you're familiar with probably a number of them. And, and just consider how long before immorality of, of all sorts creeps into a church that abandons that faith. There, there might be some of you here this morning who need to take up the shield of the faith. 
we need uh, who, whose minds are, are being peppered with arrows, fiery arrows, and who are wondering, is it all true? Uh, there are so many intellectual arguments within academia. There are so many uh, arguments about, oh, perhaps maybe Paul isn't even the author of Ephesians. Or perhaps uh, there's, there's a, an elaborate uh, theory about how uh, various books in the Old Testament came to be and that it's not what it reports itself as being. You need to take up the shield of faith or you're going to get destroyed. But considering faith subjectively as that, that assurance and that confidence in Jesus Christ, perhaps there are some of you who are, are wondering, am I really saved? Have I really trusted in Christ? And your mind is also being peppered with these fiery arrows of doubt. But you need to take up the shield of faith, too. You need to trust in Jesus, that he is able to deliver you, to protect you from all assaults that would come against you. And so take up that shield and trust in him. <coughs> There's the helmet of salvation, and this will be the, the last piece that we consider. There's also prayer, but we will... If God permits, take up prayer in, in more depth in a, in a later week. The helmet, uh, excuse me, there's two more. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Let's take up the helmet of salvation. Christ is the head of the church. He is the one that you must have as head in order for you to have your head protected and to experience salvation. That there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And not only having him as head, who is our salvation, but also having a hope and a full confidence in that salvation, knowing full well that he is able to save us. Again, what would it be like to go into battle without a helmet, to go into battle without the confidence that Jesus is able to save? How quickly we would retreat, how quickly we would lose heart. But knowing that Jesus Christ, as head of the church, is the source of her salvation, that he protects her, that our exalted head is in the heavenly places, that he is not subject to any kind of, of attack, gives us a great confidence that we, too, will attain salvation in the second coming. And there is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, this is all that God has said in his word concerning himself, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, concerning the way of salvation that we have in him. This is how the church is able to push back against these hostile enemies, how the church is able as an instrument to plunder <coughs> these heavenly hosts. As people hear the gospel, as people hear the word of God, about what he has done in Jesus Christ. They too undergo this same transformation that we have seen took place in the Ephesian church. How as the Ephesians were once alienated from God, as they were once wicked, as they were once being led by the prince of the power of the air, yet they hear the word, the gospel of their salvation, and they believe. They get to the point where Paul can say to them in chapter 6, take up arms and join the conflict. This is a work that is still ongoing through the church. 
that Christ is still gaining ground against those, those, world, those dark world powers that exercise a destructive influence among mankind. And the church has the word of God as her sword by which she brings the nations into subjection. We must always, corporately as a church, hold fast to the word of God and let us individually in our own lives, privately, hold fast to God's word as well. So, Christian, so Grace Presbyterian Church, we are called to engage in a conflict with heavenly powers, dark world forces, even with demons. But you have the most storied, resplendent, and renowned army that there is to be won. You have Jesus Christ himself, whom you can put on. And so, once again, find your strength in him. Find your strength in the salvation that he has accomplished. And stand fast in this conflict. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you fully and perfectly equip us for this conflict, that it is not a war we engage in alone and by ourselves, but one in which we are engaged in vital union with you as our head. We pray for uh, your work in us and through us that more and more uh, would be put on display, not only before the nations, but even before the heavenly powers, um, the riches of the mystery of the gospel. We pray these things in your name.